Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, sponsored by Movement is Life. We're recording this on April 6th, 2020. My name is Dr. Mary O'Connor. I am Chair of Movement is Life and Director of the Center for Musculoskeletal Care at Yale School of Medicine and Yale New Haven Health. I'm also a Professor of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at Yale. I'm looking forward to hosting today's discussion, which will hopefully help you our podcast listeners learn about how orthopedic care is being provided during this coronavirus pandemic. We all know the importance of staying home, but people still have joint pain, get injured, people can still break bones. So it's important to talk about how medical care is being provided for these conditions during this time of crisis. I also want to share with our listeners that we're creating and updating a guide to the best information links on the internet during this pandemic. It's called the Safe and Strong Guide, and it's a list of helpful links from trusted sources. It's very easy to get this guide. Just send a text to the number 474747 with the word podcast in the message. You'll get an automatic reply with a link to the Safe and Strong Guide. Now I'd like to introduce our three panel members. All are outstanding board-certified orthopedic surgeons who are members of our Movement is Life Steering Committee, and they've graciously agreed to share their time and expertise with us today. Dr. Tamara Huff is a board-certified general practice orthopedic surgeon and owner of Vigio Orthopedics in Columbus, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Huff. Thank you, Dr. O'Connor, and hello, everyone. Glad to be joining you all today. Our second panel member, Dr. Daniel Wisnia, is an assistant professor of orthopedics and rehabilitation and an assistant professor of mechanical engineering and materials science for total joint replacement of the hip and knee, both at Yale School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Wisnia. Hi, Mary. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome, Dan. And finally, Dr. Charles Nelson is Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and Chief of Joint Replacement Service at Penn Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Nelson. Thank you, Mary. It's a pleasure being here. This is such an important topic. I want to get right into questions with our panel. First, let's talk about what is happening during this pandemic for patients who need surgery. And I'm really interested in what your hospital is doing to address this. Dan, let's start with you and what's happening at Yale New Haven Hospital and in the health system. So it's very remarkable what's been happening at Yale New Haven Hospital. We made a decision early on that we would reserve all of our personal protection equipment, the masks, the gloves, the respirator masks, the N95 masks, for patients who really need it. And we were also worried about running out of supplies. So what we decided to do was we canceled all of our elective cases and we're only conducting urgent surgery. This was a little bit controversial because a lot of patients were really inconvenienced by not having their surgeries. But the way our hospital came to this decision is that we wanted to make sure that vital resources, resources that would help prevent deaths and save lives, would be available for 
uh, those who need it. Thank you, Dan. Tamara, what's happening in Georgia? So in my practice, I have the opportunity to work at multiple hospitals, but my hospitals are mostly rural. So while I'm in Georgia, I also work in Kansas and Middle America. And what we're seeing in smaller, more rural, rural hospitals is that we're continuing to practice um, some elective cases. We're definitely trying not to do as many as usual. Um, however, we still are. One of the challenges for many rural hospitals is they're working on such small margins to start with that if we completely stop all elective cases, we really are losing revenue to the point that these hospitals may close. We've actually already had one hospital close in Kansas since this whole um, COVID-19 epidemic started. So in our hospital, we're definitely limiting our cases. I have um, very frank conversations with our patients on whether or not they really do need the surgery but we are still doing some elective cases and, and hospital administration as well as the Department of Public Health have made that decision go back to surgeons. We are the ones that actually make that decision here. Dr. Nelson, what's happening at, uh, at Penn Medicine in Philadelphia? Well, in about the middle of March, uh, the health system made a decision to uh, not have any elective surgical procedures performed or to see patients in the outpatient setting on an elective basis. Uh, and, and that was ahead of what was where that was done at some other places, just in anticipation of the uh, upcoming pandemic. You know, so they were very early in that process of, uh, of really trying to uh, maintain resources uh, for the anticipated spike in the uh, COVID-19 patients. Um, so uh, at the prior to instituting that, all of our Division leaders uh, met uh, and um, met with our department leadership regarding what we would consider urgent cases so that we would have it defined for each subdivision. And then our chair would stand as the uh, person to determine whether or not a case was sufficiently urgent that it should be done. Uh, and we also uh, stopped our uh, elective uh, outpatient. So people, we stopped seeing people in the office. We, we, we would see them now with either telemedicine or, um, or uh, uh, video visits uh, if they had uh, non-urgent problems that we did not need to see in person. We still would see patients that were post-operative patients where we needed to see their wounds to make certain that there were no wound-related issues or patients who needed to come in for radiographs those patients we would still see, but we definitely cut down significantly both our outpatient uh, evaluations as well as our uh, elective surgical procedures. Uh, but we did uh, start to enhance uh, um, uh, trying to keep our patients, at least keep engaged with our patients and be able to provide some care to our patients through virtual visits, through telemedicine or video conferencing. I, I'd like us to dive a little bit deeper into the definitions of emergent and urgent surgeries to help our listeners better understand this triage process because all three of you have discussed that there is some type of triage going on with things a little bit more, with things certainly more stringent in New Haven and in Philadelphia than what Dr. Huff is experiencing in Georgia. Um, so Dr. Wisnia, Tell us about how urgent and emergent 
classifications are being used in New Haven, Connecticut. So when we first started to think about reducing our case volumes, we were asked to prioritize cases that we thought were um, urgent cases versus emergencies. As the time has progressed and as resources have been consumed, we're now only doing emergency cases. Now, what's the difference? An urgent case might be for a patient who has um, a, a fracture that doesn't necessarily need to be treated with surgery. They have, they're in a lot of pain and a surgery would relieve them of that pain and discomfort. An emergency surgery is a life-saving surgery. Our hospital has become so strict that they are even limiting surgeries for patients who have cancer if they're eligible to undergo another round of chemotherapy. So we sort of use that definition of the cancer patient and surgery for the cancer patient as a line in the sand. And then every surgical discipline has to really say, well, is this, as, how can I compare my case to that cancer patient who may not be getting surgery? That to be said, any cancer patient who needs emergency life-saving surgery is getting the surgery. Charles, Dr. Nelson, how does that description uh, that Dr. Wisnia uh, just uh, gave us fit with how you're applying uh, triage criteria in Philadelphia? Yeah, so I mean, it is a it is a spectrum, and different people interpret what is urgent or emergent differently. So for some people, they may consider it urgent because they've been in severe pain for a long period of time; they can't walk. Uh, but generally, that in at, at our institution, that's probably not going to cut mustard for doing surgery right now in the middle of this crisis. However. If somebody had, currently we're still doing, somebody was at a, a, an acute fracture that still requires fixation. If somebody falls and has a hip fracture, there is a high level of mortality if those fractures aren't fixed uh, relatively quickly. So, so those patients, at least at this time, are still getting surgery. Uh, if we have somebody who uh, has a, uh, a, a redo type of situation where there is really bad bone loss to the point that the there's an impending fracture those patients at our center are still getting surgery but as the as we get more and more COVID-19 patients somebody may actually need to have a fracture to have surgery and then at some point it may get to the point where even if you have a fracture you still may not be able to get surgery depending on what the resources that are available so so it is a uh, it is a changing um, situation and it really depends upon where we go uh, with this uh, with this pandemic. I, I think the fortunate thing is it looks like things have started to flatten in the Philadelphia region with the social distancing a little earlier uh, than they uh, did in the New York metropolitan area. And hopefully we don't get into um, a, a severe catastrophic situation. Uh, but really, it really depends upon, there is limited resources everywhere and uh, it really depends upon what care we can safely provide in trying to uh, preserve uh, the life-saving care for those patients that really need it with this pandemic, as well as other life-saving uh, conditions that come on 
uh, in just everyday practice of medicine. So Dr. Huff, I want uh, to turn to you and have you share with us in a little bit more detail. Again, is what kind of triage is occurring in your experience in your area, which is more rural and rural focused, um, and how you're doing with PPE, personal protective equipment, because that's certainly been a driver at other large centers uh, for limiting elective surgery because these large centers have to preserve the PPE uh, for COVID positive patients and healthcare providers that are taking care of them. So what's happening literally in your neck of the woods? Currently I'm practicing mostly in Kansas and in Kansas, it's been one of the states that's been least affected by the COVID crisis. Now, part of that is issues with testing. Um, in our particular county, we only have two cases in the entire county and that these cases were just positive this weekend. With that in mind, we have still been very mindful of PPE. Um, we do have the N95 mask here. We also have been screening all of our patients before they come into the hospital, um, both with, with a thermometer for checking their temperature as well as for symptoms. We're also um, checking all of our staff when they come in as well. Starting this Monday, we are actually asking patients to wear masks as well. All of the staff have the option of wearing masks, but they have not started all the way. Um, thus, right now, our PPE um, supplies are just fine. We are starting to use um, N95 masks for surgical procedures, um, especially for anyone that's getting general anesthesia or there's any chances of um, aerosolization. Um, also, as far as surgical procedures, we're definitely trying to be mindful of the AOS guidelines and that's the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons guidelines on what is emergent, what is urgent, just like the larger centers are. But again, we also have to be mindful that we don't have as many cases. And if we do not do anything, the potential ramifications of that as well. I want to ask about testing. I know our listeners have heard a lot about testing and they've heard about testing that's not available, but we're making progress. And I think it would be very interesting uh, for our listeners to just get a snapshot from each of you as to your perspectives on where your centers and locations are with testing. And let's first start with testing of patients who get admitted to the hospital, either because they're sick with uh, with perhaps COVID-19, or they're sick with another condition, or they're admitted because they fell and they broke their hip. Dr. Nelson, what is your testing protocol in Philadelphia? So I, I believe that it, it's changing, but we are basically following, we're following the CDC guidelines as they are changing. So uh, somebody who has, um, uh, anybody who has any suspicion for COVID should self-isolate and contact their physician and have their physician determine whether or not testing is appropriate. And ideally contact their physician virtually so they're not coming into a health system and uh, putting others at risk. Uh, so that is the initial, um, uh, the initial plan. If, they, if there is a, uh, a good rationale based upon the CDC guidelines uh, for them to be tested, uh, then we are recommending that they be tested. Uh, Penn has set up testing centers 
um, uh, both uh, downtown as well as in the suburbs uh, that are drive-in drive testing centers. Uh, and they also have the rapid uh, testing available uh, that is being done um, uh, in the facilities themselves, particularly when, um, when there's high-risk patients where, where the diagnosis is critical or where uh, healthcare workers are uh, potentially infected and could uh, pass on infection to others. Uh, so those processes are in place and, and they've been ramping up the testing. And I, I can't tell you the exact numbers. I was trying to look at the most recent numbers uh, on my phone, but, uh, but they've been ramping up that testing. Dr. Nelson, thank you. And I know all of us are living in a time that's very fluid with things changing basically on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, Dr. Wisnia, uh, of your perspective and knowledge of uh, the updated testing protocols for patients who are, are admitted uh, in the Yale New Haven Health System. Within the hospital, our capabilities for testing are a little bit uh, limited in that we're able to test about 400 um, patients a day. Now, this is also augmented by additional testing that we have access to from the Mayo Clinic. Our internal testing um, that we try to conduct is limited because of reagents that we're consuming um, that all labs across the country require to do these tests that are in short supply. And because those reagents are in critical shortage, we're limited based on the delivery time. We also do have access to rapid testing and that rapid testing is reserved for two different populations, one, the healthcare workers, and two, um, high priority patients where a critical uh, immediate answer uh, may influence their treatment plan. Dr. Hoff, what's the testing like in your area for patients being admitted to the hospital? If you come into the hospital with symptoms, so if you have close contact with someone that's had COVID-19, or if you have been in a hot spot um, outside the state of Kansas or in the state of Kansas in an area that has known cases and have a fever along with low respiratory symptoms, then you meet our criteria as far as getting tested. Now, again, the whole process is very fluid. Um, up until recently, you still had to get a respiratory panel before you could actually be tested for COVID-19. Um, since then, that has changed and is those um, requirements are changing, it seems like hourly, <laughs> on whether or not that's required. Um, we do not have the rapid test that can be back in less than an hour or so, but in general, it's coming back within um, two to three days in the interim. If you're suspected to be COVID positive, of course, we isolate you and do all the typical um, personal protective standards. Dr. Hoff, just uh, detail for our listeners, what's a mm -hmm. respiratory panel? They won't, um, they may not understand that. Absolutely. So that would include checking um, to see whether or not you have the flu, also checking for other viruses that could potentially be causing this besides COVID-19. Very helpful. I just want to perhaps provide some reassurance to our listeners uh, that what I'm hearing from all of you is that if someone comes into the hospital and they're in some type of accident, we'll just say a car accident, and even before COVID-19, that patient needed to go to surgery 
as an urgent or emergent patient, emergency surgery, those patients are still getting the same kind of emergency surgical care mm -hmm. now as they would have received prior to the pandemic. Which is correct, Dr. Hoff? Yes. Yes, absolutely correct. And Dr. Yes. Nelson and Dr. Wisniak. Yes. I would say in most situations, yes, but there are some situations in which if there is if you were in a trauma and there is an acceptable treatment that's not operative that has primarily been treated operatively in the past, uh, we are now seeing um, these non-operative treatments uh, being used in place in some instances. Understood. But if you were in, if someone in New Haven was in a major car accident and they needed surgery right then to save their life. Life-saving surgery is, of course, uh, being given for those patients. Right. So I just wanted to reassure our listeners that for those patients that are coming in to any of the, for care, where any of these three orthopedic surgeons practice, life-saving surgery is still occurring, which I think is important for our listeners to understand. But then after that, we kind of get into a little bit more of the gray zone and the challenging area where patients that are urgent patients, for example, a hip fracture patient where we know that we operate on almost all of those patients, and it's very important for them to have timely surgery, not have surgery delayed because delaying surgery on an elderly individual with a hip fracture will increase the chances of them dying. Um, so in general, those patients are still getting surgical care in a timely manner. Can yeah. I just poll everyone Absolutely. on the panel? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, absolutely. All right. So then it's the patients that come and have, we'll just say, an ankle fracture or a wrist fracture that pre-COVID-19, the surgeon would have said, yes, let's uh, take you to the operator. I recommend surgery in a few days. Those patients are now being handled in a different manner. Dr. Wisnia, I just want you to confirm or uh, confirm or refute that I, I agree with that um, it's, it's, those patients are being triaged differently and if those patients uh, do not require surgery uh, the surgery the, the uh, treatment plan is the non-operative treatment so so Dan just for my clarity I think what I'm hearing from you is that given the pandemic the surgeons are um, uh, uh, considering non-operative treatments probably a little bit more strongly than they would have in the past. Is that an accurate statement? That's an accurate statement. And what we're also seeing is some patients actually would prefer non-operative. There's definitely a risk being in the hospital around uh, patients that uh, might be able to you know, spread the disease, um, healthcare workers who uh, unknowingly are sick and spreading the disease. So we are also noticing some patients saying, you know what, um, I'd rather delay the surgical care um, down the road and we can revisit this in six to eight weeks. Yes. Dr. Nelson, has that been your experience with elective patients as well in Philadelphia? 
Well, I think elective patients, yes. So, so I, I think there is a spectrum. So um, I think at Penn, we still are probably surgically treating more injuries where the outcomes are significantly adversely affected by delays in treatment because we still have enough room that the, the pandemic has not reached the point where, where those procedures cannot be performed. Uh, it, there becomes a, it becomes a gray zone. So I would say like a wrist fracture, a wrist fracture, I think in the past was often treated non-operatively with pretty good successful outcomes, uh, increased stiffness compared to good surgical fixation, maybe a little more deformity, uh, but they healed and they typically happen in elderly patients. And those patients are probably at higher risk for being hospitalized uh, with COVID-19. So you could very, you could very, you could make a very rational argument for not treating a wrist fracture uh, surgically in during this pandemic. A hip fracture, on the other hand, the likelihood of mortality is much higher, as as well as a femur fracture, uh, where the disability is much likely, it's more likely to be much more severely impacted if it's attempted to be treated uh, non-operatively. So those things at our center are still being treated surgically. Dr. Huff, I want to get back to you again about rural hospitals. I, I personally have a lot of concern about uh, how we're going to continue to provide access and care for patients in rural America. We know there are a record number of closures of hospitals in rural America. I mean, we've seen that in big cities too, for example, Hahnemann University Hospital in Philadelphia, but, but I think that people may not be as aware of the crisis of hospital closures in rural America. And that millions of Americans, you know, live in counties where they don't have access to an intensive care unit, for example. I, my, my concern is that we're starting to see uh, more, I, I'll guess I'll, I'll say spread of the virus into the heartland. Mm -hmm. And as we see that, our rural hospitals and rural healthcare system is going to become even more stressed than they than than previous previous to the pandemic. I just would like your your thoughts on my concerns. Well, I share a lot of your concerns. Um, in rural America, the demographics typically skew older, um, and there are issues with transportation. So. With those, with the idea of an older population that does have difficulty with transport, it is really important to keep the local hospitals going. Um, many times, just a 15-minute drive is a major concern for them because they don't have public transportation options. Also, too, my patients joke, they have been social distancing from the beginning, so they live maybe several miles away from another neighbor or a hospital does close, they may have to travel 20, 30 miles, sometimes even one to two hours to get to that level of care somewhere else. Yeah. With that in mind, with the spread of COVID-19, we run into the problem of the patients that are older, that have comorbidities, are a lot of times in the, in the heartland, are the highest risk patients in this population. So they don't want to come out. They don't want um, to necessarily have surgery unless they absolutely have to. So that greatly decreases the number of patients that we're seeing, and that actually affects the bottom line of these smaller hospitals. 
which makes them even more financially insoluble than they were before. So I find that in the area where I'm practicing now versus, and also other places that I'm practicing and then where I have um, colleagues that are practicing, there is that very fine line of what can we continue to do safely to service our patient population, but at the same time protect them from this threat. Uh, we want to have a hospital still available for them. So come six months from now or however long from now that the coronavirus is no longer a threat, we still want to have a hospital there. And if um, these smaller hospitals do steps where they stop seeing all clinic patients except for post-ops or stop seeing all patients except for life or limb threatening surgical patients, they won't be able to open back up. The risk of closing and not opening back up is a major, major concern for these smaller facilities. Um, there's actually an excellent article in The Guardian, um, I believe came out yesterday about this. This is another great review of how this is affecting these smaller hospitals, especially even in other states like Washington, um, Washington State, where they've had major outbreaks in the larger centers, but not in these smaller local areas. Thank you, Dr. Hoff. I want to follow that theme of access. Uh, and ask uh, Dr. Nelson and then Dr. Wisnia about what is happening uh, from your perspective for access for uninsured or underinsured patients in Philadelphia and New Haven respectively. Because as you've described, your centers have gone to virtual uh, visits. You, there's, you, there's been a dramatic decrease in patients actually being seen and and everything's kind of being deferred as much as possible. What about patients that normally have challenges with accessing care, even in the best of times? Dr. Nelson. Yeah, so, you know, I think Penn has always been pretty good about um, providing care to uh, patients with, uh, 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 who are underinsured and indigent and, and, and the really vulnerable patient population that um, some of the other uh, facilities in our city um, are, are a little more reluctant to take care of. Uh, so I think, I don't think that that has changed, but I think all patients are having um, less access to medical care for non-urgent issues. So if somebody has knee pain or hip pain or shoulder pain or back pain, that's chronic and longstanding, and they may have been able to get an appointment for evaluation of that in person, now uh, those patients are really going to be able to get that evaluation only virtually at this point during this pandemic uh, in order to try to protect uh, the health of the patients that are in our facilities as well as the healthcare workers who may be needed to take care of the uh, victims uh, during the crisis. So, so there has, like I said, early on in the, in the middle of March, uh, there were decisions made among the leadership at our institution to try to make certain that the, not only the PPE resources, but also the uh, bed resources, uh, ICUs, ventilator resources, and, and healthcare uh, worker resources would be available uh, to meet the needs uh, during the pandemic. Thank you, Dr. Nelson. Dr. Wisnia, would you like to comment? One thing that um, in particular, I've been very, interested in is our patient's ability to receive testing 
for COVID uh, out in the community. And we did a uh, study looking at whether uninsured patients uh, were able to obtain COVID testing in their community urgent care centers. Now, an uninsured patient, when approaching one of these urgent care centers, they're being told that they uh, will have to pay for the test. We know that there's a federal law that says that insured patients, uh, their insurance is going to cover that testing uh, cost. But for the uninsured patient, we don't really know um, how much the testing will cost. So when a, an uninsured patient goes to a, a center and they're told, yes, we can test you, and uh, but we don't know how much it's gonna cost, it's very hard for someone um, who's financially limited to agree to have the testing done in the first place. We have um, seen that uh, become an issue at uh, these urgent care centers. For that, let's, uh, I just wanna follow that thread another moment for that uninsured patient. However, if they were to come to Yale New Haven Hospital or a hospital in that health system with symptoms that were con of concern for COVID-19, would that patient be tested at our hospital even though they don't have insurance? That patient uh, will be tested and they'll be treated. Um, the hospital uh, does not have a policy in terms of uh, treating patients regarding their insurance uh, in this acute uh, period. Um, but it's a real issue um, out in the community uh, and for communities that don't have access to um, institutions who are giving this um, free or discounted care. Um, there's a large number of uninsured workers, for example, construction workers, cooks, uh, grocery, uh, retail people. Um, and a lot of these patients uh, don't receive insurance with their jobs. And um, then when they go seek out the testing, um, they're told that they're gonna be financially liable for the testing. It leads to a lot of uncertainty, uh, whether, first of all, that, are these patients even finding out whether they um, were infected or are infected and whether they need to be quarantined appropriately. So it adds a lot of additional risk to the, the community at large if these patients are afraid uh, to be tested uh, given the uh, unknown financial burden. Wow, Dan, I was just imagining um, an individual like that who has been laid off from their job, has a family to feed at home, and concerned whether they're COVID positive or not, and going to a center and being told just what you're what you're describing, well, we can test you, you're going to, we're gonna send you a bill, but we don't know exactly what that bill is gonna be. And of course that's, um, my, in my personal opinion, completely messed up. I mean, if we're going to control pandemics, we have to be able to test people. And, and one of my you know, personal uh, hopes is that as, as we get through this current pandemic, uh, we'll be able to make uh, some important decisions and proactive planning that will put us in a much stronger position uh, for, unfortunately, what would probably be our next future pandemic. So I want to turn uh, to 
the topic of physician stress and surgeon stress. I just commented about stress to individuals, and I, I think all of us uh, understand that. Uh, very stressful for patients, very stressful for their families. I, I have a patient um, that I will be operating on tomorrow with a hip fracture, and I just spoke to her daughter earlier today who uh, was crying on the phone because she can't go in and be with her mother, uh, mm -hmm. which of course is uh, very stressful for all involved. But I wanna ask each of you to comment on the stress that you feel that surgeons are encountering as we step up to take care of patients during this pandemic. Dr. Hoffa, I'll start with you. I think um, as, as a surgeon, Part of how we treat patients is providing comfort. Um, those intangible things, um, sometimes it is just that interaction that you have with patients. And right now, with the coronavirus and um, maintaining safe and appropriate distances, having the proper protective equipment, it is a challenge to have that connection with patients. Um, I also feel that it's very stressful for patients if they have to have surgery, not being able to have a significant other present. And even though that's not directly affecting me, I feel that the onus as a surgeon is a little bit more on us to be that bridge, to be that supportive person. And that can take a lot out of you especially if you're doing something like a hip fracture or a more emergent case like we were talking about where it's an elderly patient or an isolated patient that's used to having a spouse there or a daughter or someone else there with them. And it's just you and that patient. They really, they need you more and you find yourself giving a little bit more. Um, again, I feel that it's very, very important during these times to take time out for yourself to remain grounded. Um, if you do, if you're a spiritual or a religious person, um, tapping into those resources, whether it be meditation or I actually attend online services to kind of keep my spirits up because it can, that your staff right now, our staff, our patients are all looking to us as surgeons to be that grounding factor, even down to the point of whether or not they'll have work the next day. And it is important to take a step back and keep that personal peace and calm so you can share that and be that rock for everyone else. Thank you. Very well said. Dr. Nelson, how are you dealing with the stress of the pandemic and, and how do you think your colleagues are? Yeah, I think, I think it's tough on everyone. I mean, we're all, you know, type A personalities. We like to be very, very busy. Uh, we like to take care of the patients, and, and, it's, and it's very difficult when we're not able to care for some of the patients that we'd like to care for. And then, obviously, there's, there's some of the emergent and urgent type of cases, and I think uh, Tamara very nicely, you know, outlined some of the concerns there where the family members aren't able to come into the hospital now in order to maintain social distancing and minimize the likelihood of spread of the pandemic, but this this disease is really a very, very traumatic disease for families because of that inability for people to bond uh, um, when, when their loved ones are in the hospital and in the ICU on ventilators, and they, they, don't, they, don't, get that, they don't get that time with, uh, with their family members. So I think this is, a, this is one of the more difficult uh, conditions that, uh, as health professionals, we've been involved in. I mean, fortunately, I'm not 
someone who works in the ICU or in the ER, uh, seeing that that type of thing on a daily basis. I'm taking care of patients right now with musculoskeletal injuries, but uh, there may come a time even at our institution if the pandemic comes uh, large enough. I mean, I know uh, there are surgeons, orthopedic surgeons in Italy, essentially working in the ICU because of because of the need. And 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 I know uh, friends of friends who are in that position. So. So it is a very trying and stressful period, I think, for everyone, including all Americans and our patients as well. Dr. Wisnia, how are you and, and your colleagues dealing with the stress of this pandemic? So first thing is I um, have just shut off the news because I think the news stream, the continuous barrage, it's stressful. It's anxiety provoking. And um, what I have done is really focused all my energy on trying to assist the hospital in preparing for the pandemic. Um, through the School of Engineering, I've been working with uh, two teams. Uh, one, uh, trying to uh, improve a system so that we can treat multiple patients on one ventilator. Um, and we have a very advanced system in place. and. Um, we're about to uh, conduct human testing. Um, so that's taken up a lot of my time. And the second has also been uh, coordinating uh, with uh, the group who's trying to uh, produce personal protective equipment, masks, gowns to be made available to the medical staff. And that's been a good distraction to me. But the other thing I found is that family and friends have been reaching out to me asking me how I'm doing. And it's been a great opening uh, to rekindle some uh, relationships, uh, to find a little bit of time to call uh, folks that I haven't had the chance to speak to um, and speak to them, you know, not just about the pandemic, but how uh, they're doing. Um, so you got to try to see this, you know, if there is one silver lining here is that I've really seen an incredible community at Yale uh, band together uh, the research faculty and um, and put um, all of the um, systems uh, together to um, prepare for this pandemic. And it's and if anything, that's been very uplifting and humbling to see so many um, faculty um, invest so much time and energy to uh, prepare the institution. Dan, that was an excellent response. So, panel, I'm going to ask you uh, one final question, uh, which is, what's the best advice that you can give to our listeners so that they avoid that fracture and they don't need urgent or emergent orthopedic care during this horrible pandemic? What is the, the, the most sage advice that you could give our listeners? Dr. Hoff. Don't try anything new. This is not the time. <laughs> this is not the time to go buy a table saw. This is not the time to go clean your gutters for the first time. Um, we are having an epidemic of distal radius fractures, of metacarpal fractures. Just this wrist too and shall... hand fractures. I'm just translating as you go. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrist and hand fractures. Um, this is not the time <laughs> to do those new things. This is the time to be with family. If there are things that you enjoy doing, 
this too shall pass. Take the time to enjoy those things, but please, please, please do not go get a table saw. Do not do anything wild and crazy during this time because you can put yourself into a situation where you'll need our services um, sooner rather than later. Excellent. Dr. Wisnia, advice for our listeners. To really be careful when you go out shopping and going to the stores, make sure you observe the social distancing, make sure you're wearing a mask at all times, make sure that you wash your hands when you come home. If you're careful, you can reduce spread of the disease and there's a good chance that you won't catch the infection. Also, you got to be active. You can't stay at home watching TV um, the whole day. Make sure you're up and walking around your house. If you have a safe place to walk outside, I encourage you to do it. But make sure you are observing those social distancing rules if you do go outside. Excellent. Dr. Nelson. So, you know, I'll follow up on both uh, Dr. Huff and Dr. Wisnia's comments. And what I would say is social distancing is critical and uh, washing your hands frequently, not touching your face. You know, that is very, very critical to not catch getting the virus. Wearing a mask also will decrease the likelihood of spread to others. So I think that's another. And th these things are being highlighted, you know, on a hourly basis on the news. Uh, but I think the other thing is, that's, that's important is I think it is important to try to do things and, 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 and be busy both for mental health as well as physical health, uh, but you, you don't want to rush. So when you're, when you're, you want to be efficient with your activities, but you don't want to rush. When you rush, that's when you fall down the stairs and, and, you, and you break an ankle, you break a hip or something. You want to be thoughtful in your movements. And, you know, I would agree with Dr. Huff, don't take up a new hobby. But it's okay to be careful doing some of your old hobbies if you're going to be at home and fixing up your home. But again, it's probably not a good idea to be on a ladder leaning over, and it's probably not a good idea to take up a table saw if you've never used one before. Uh, but but there there is the opportunities for people to do things together at home, social distance, and you know just don't rush. Don't rush. Be careful and, and think about what you do before you do it. Excellent. Dr. Hoff, you had another comment. Um, yes, activity and movement is still very important. And part of how our bones stay healthy is movement and weight-bearing type activities. So right now, we're not going to be necessarily out running. Hopefully, you're somewhere where you can safely walk and run. But if you are in an area where you're not, making sure you're still moving, but also making sure you're taking something like vitamin D and calcium to keep your bones strong during this process. Um, vitamin D and calcium are great for bone healing, heaven forbid, if you have a fracture, but it's also a good way to keep strong bones to help prevent fractures from happening in the first place. So again, stay safe, stay active, no table saws, stay off the ladders, but also um, do other things to keep those bones nice and strong with like calcium and vitamin D. It's important, you'll hear me say calcium and vitamin D. Many people know that calcium is a very important building block for bone health, but you, calcium does not work unless you have vitamin D. Vitamin D is what actually helps your body absorb the calcium and build that calcium into bone. So 
that's why you're, you may have heard your physician or if you've been in the vitamin aisle, you always see those two together. So it's important to get calcium and the vitamin D, which a lot of times you can't get from the sun, but we're not out as much as usual. So it's great to get them together so you can actually absorb that important calcium to make your bones stronger. That's excellent. So I'm going to just summarize for our listeners some of these uh, bullet points of advice. One, now's not the time to uh, go buy a new power tool or take up a new activity that you're not uh, comfortable with uh, because we're seeing an increase in orthopedic surgical injuries uh, from people doing um, activities at home that are higher risk, falling off ladders, table saw injuries, etc. And this is obviously not the time that anyone wants to get injured. Uh, number two, keep moving. If you can walk outside and it's safe, great, do that. Social, keep your social distance. Uh, remember, it's important to be paying attention to your bone health because patients that are getting surgery in this COVID-19 pandemic are, for example, people that fracture their hips. And we want the risk of a hip fracture to go down, and it will if your bones are stronger. So calcium and vitamin D, and as Dr. Huff said, you need the vitamin D so you can absorb the calcium. I love Dr. Wisnia's suggestion for our mental health, which is don't listen to the news 24 seven, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's just, I find it personally, um, I agree with Dan, it increases my level of anxiety. Um, so I think that is, was really uh, good advice, Dan, to our listeners. Um, I'm just going to ask everyone for some closing comments, but before I do that, I wanna remind our listeners that they can receive a link to our Safe and Strong Guide by sending a text of 474747 with the word podcast as the message. I'm just gonna ask our, our panel for any uh, closing comments they might have for our listeners uh, as orthopedic surgeons, something important that you would want want to share. Dr. Wisnia. So I have a few uh, points I'd like to get across. One, if you think you're sick, um, stay home. Even if you suspect it's not the coronavirus, stay home so you don't infect others. If you have any suspicion, you should get tested. This will help make sure that you're quarantined and anyone who was exposed to you is quarantined so that they aren't spreading the virus. Know that there is federal legislation that um, is supposed to give our uninsured individuals free testing. That it may be inconsistent, but I imagine after the pandemic resolves, the billing will also get straightened out. So if you aren't able to afford the test, know that the federal legislation is supposed to cover that testing fee. And make sure that you're following all of the, the guidelines, wearing the mask, washing your hands, not touching your face. If you're responsible, you can actually save lives and you can prevent others from getting sick and not being available to help. Dr. Wisnia, thank you. Dr. Nelson. 
Yeah, I think uh, Dan put it really, really well. I think the keys are uh, social distancing, frequent hand washing, uh, protecting yourself and protecting others, uh, and, and really, uh, you know, finding that humanity of, of, of really having that concern for everyone else. And if you're sick, stay at home. Don't, don't go to your doctor's office. Call your doctor. And, and see what your doctor recommends. If your doctor, after speaking with you, recommends testing, then get testing. And as Dan mentioned, there is uh, legislation that should cover the cost of that testing because it's really in everyone's best interest, nationally and internationally, that we beat this virus and that the people who are infected know as early as possible so that they can be quarantined and help protect against the spread of this, this uh, devastating disease. Thank you, Dr. Nelson. Dr. Hoff. Um, I echo everything that's been said before. Um, just again, stay safe by staying home, washing your hands regularly, and be encouraged. This whole, all of this will pass eventually. So just keeping a healthy mindset and keeping your spirits up is probably one of the most important things that you can do during this time period. Panel, I, I wanna ask the question, as if I'm a patient that was going to have joint replacement surgery because of my terrible hip or knee arthritis. And we know that there's so many patients out there because we do in this country 1 million hip and knee replacements a year. So given the fact that these patients who are considered elective surgeries um, have been deferred. So the patient who was on your schedule, for example, Dr. Wisnia, to have a knee replacement has been called and been told, I'm sorry, we're going to have to reschedule your surgery. What is the best advice you have for your patient um, as they're now waiting and, and still in pain and, and still having significant symptoms? How, how do you advise them to, to manage in this time of crisis? So that's a, a great question, Mary. When I tell the patients, um, and I gotta, I gotta tell you, it's been hard because I, I called all my patients who I had to delay their surgery. And I explained to them that we also have to see it as an opportunity. There's an opportunity to optimize yourself for an elective surgery so that you can actually be healthier than you were going to be. You can lose weight. You can make sure that you fully stop smoking. You can continue to control your blood sugar and improve your blood sugars if you have diabetes. There's always an opportunity to be a healthier patient. Being a healthier patient will, will reduce the risk that you have a complication. So there could be a silver lining there and that it does give patients a little bit of extra time to be optimized. Excellent. Dr. Nelson. What advice would you give that patient that I described that you had to uh, reschedule, delay, cancel their elective surgery for now? Well, I, I think we have to be empathetic and understand that they're experiencing a great deal of pain and it's very, very difficult for them. And, 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 we, and, and we work hard to try to help them understand that we really care and that their pain is important to us and helping them get over their pain is important to, to us. Unfortunately, there's no way for us to completely solve their pain, um, which is the reason we're planning on doing the joint replacement in the first place. However, uh, 
there are things that they can do to optimize themselves, as, as, as Dr. Wisnia mentioned, weight loss, uh, stop, stop smoking, and, and work on trying to be as healthy as they can be. Uh, and they can also work on trying to modulate their pain to the best of their uh, ability by trying to strengthen the surrounding muscles, but in a way that they're not putting too much stress across the joints. So non-impact uh, conditioning that's not putting tremendous stress. So for a knee problem, you may do some straight leg raises where your, your leg is completely straight and you're working your quads as you're lifting your leg up and down, but you're not bending the knee uh, during that activity. And as their muscles get stronger, that can also help them recover faster after surgery when they ultimately have the opportunity to undergo surgery. And it might help modulate their pain some. Uh, there's also a number of different, uh, both uh, medications as well as different types of uh, nutritional supplements that some people feel help them with their pain. Uh, Tylenol is the safest of the medications, but it's not as effective as the anti-inflammatory medicines, uh, which are a little more effective but have more side effects. And then there's things like glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate, MSM, which makes some people feel a little better. There's also some topical remedies, uh, such as Voltaren gel and uh, different anti-inflammatory topical solutions uh, that in some cases may help modulate people's pain. Uh, but it is a challenge. And, and now, you know, we're not even bringing patients in for injections uh, um, because of the, um, because they're trying to avoid people that are elective situations in the office. Uh, however, if somebody has really severe disabling pain, occasionally we may bring them in to try to help with an injection as, as we're not putting too many people at risk by bringing those patients in. So Dr. Nelson, uh, share with our listeners the advice that you would give your patient who has severe arthritis, who is scheduled for joint replacement surgery, that now has to have their surgery delayed because of this pandemic? That is a very, very challenging problem. And, and it's something that we are facing on a, a daily basis now. There, there's a lot of our patients who are really, really suffering and, and we feel for them. We, we want them to uh, be pain-free, which is one of the reasons that we offered them joint replacements in the first place. And unfortunately, uh, we don't have a non-operative cure for severe arthritis, uh, but I would recommend that they do what they can to try to modulate their pain to the best of their ability, uh, strengthening the surrounding muscles, and doing so in a way that they're not putting excessive stress across their knee. So, for example, if you're talking about a knee problem, you could do straight leg raises where you're strengthening your quadriceps muscles. That can help you recover faster after surgery, and it doesn't put a lot of stress on your knee as opposed to somebody trying to do a squat where they're strengthening their muscles, but they're putting a lot of stress, especially across their patellofemoral joint or under their kneecap. Uh, so in those cases, we really, uh, we would discourage people from that type of exercise, but recommend exercise that is less stressful on their joints. Uh, if people have access to a swimming pool, uh, exercises in the water are an excellent way of unloading the joint, getting movement, getting some mobility of the joint without putting excessive stress. And then there's different types of medications uh, that people could take. Uh, Tylenol is what I would recommend because it's very, very safe. Uh, some people talk about anti-inflammatory medications like Aleve or Advil, but given that we're in this COVID-19 pandemic and there is some evidence that these may increase the risks 
of mortality uh, in patients uh, who develop COVID-19. Right now, I personally would not recommend that as a treatment for my patients. Uh, and then there's, there's other types of nutritional supplements like glucosamine, conjointin sulfate, MSM, or other topical remedies uh, that can sometimes be helpful. Dr. Hoff, do you agree with that approach, advising your patients right now to avoid the anti-inflammatory medicines like Aleve and Motrin and Advil and using Tylenol? Um, to a point, I get, that's one of the most common questions I get right now is, is it safe? And many of these patients were very well managed on the anti-inflammatories prior to this happening. Um, thus far, I've been giving them a very similar talk to what uh, Dr. Nelson is saying, that yes, if you develop COVID that, or coronavirus, uh, there are potential for significant interactions and complications if you're taking anti-inflammatory. And if you have any symptoms or around anyone that has symptoms, then you should probably stop taking it. However, I am not readily advising them to stop taking it because it's helping them so, so significantly. Um, also, too, at my facility, we have a little bit more flexibility as far as treating people with steroid injections. So we still are bringing a good number of people in for steroid injections to help with the pain so we can get them through this period and hopefully get their surgery much later on in the year. We know that we're advising patients to stay home, social distance, don't go out. So for people that are staying home, do you have any advice on resources for them? Absolutely. Um, there are various different resources, but first of all, you're on, given that you're on this podcast, we do have a safe and strong guide. So you can text the word podcast to 474747. And again, you want to send the word podcast as the message. That's again, 474747. And that is a resource that has joint friendly activities that you can do at home with minimal additional equipment. There's also resources online through the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons that are free as well at www.orthoinfo.org. Dr. Hoff, thanks. Uh, I love the plug for our um, safe and strong guide. I want to thank the panel members for their time and expertise. I am excited about uh, sharing this podcast with our listeners uh, and the valuable information and advice that it contains. So everyone stay well and stay safe out there. Thank you very much.